Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Before we start, you know, when my, when my wife and I first got married, um, I remember our first apartment. It was a one-bedroom apartment, and we had this, uh, this TV armor in the bedroom. And on top of the armor, she, she had all these figurines, you know, just these figures of, uh, I remember this big cat and, uh, you know, some Disney characters and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I mean, we're married, it's a couple, you know, uh, I'm thinking, what are those things doing up there? And, uh, and I tell my wife, honey, you know, uh, can we get rid of those things? And, uh. And she said to me, well, those things are very valuable to me. I said, why? She said, because my grandmother gave them to me. And so, before we get into the preaching of God's word this morning, I just wanted to tell you that this series that we're about to engage this week and next week is to remind us of the gift that we've been given and who gave us that gift. So I pray that this morning uh, we may be marveled at the giver of the gift. Okay? Amen. Well, let us start. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let us pray. Father, Lord, I come to you this morning, and we come to you as people of unclean lips, sinners. But Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would be displaying for us your majestic holiness. Father, I pray that you would show us your 
glory this morning, that you would show us your holiness this morning in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my weakness, in spite, Lord, of my lack of understanding and wisdom, in spite of my poor communication skills. Father, I pray that we would behold your glory this morning in spite of our sin. And we trust in your word because this is here for a reason to make you known. We want to know you more this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I recently... Read a, read a funny story online. It was a story of a young couple who, re- who rented a vacation cottage for a week. And one beautiful afternoon, this husband looked out of one of the windows, and as he looked outside, he saw this wonderful swimming pool. And he exclaimed to his wife, Honey, let's change our clothes and get some exercise. So his wife who was washing the dishes in the kitchen, looked outside the kitchen window, and as she looked out the kitchen window, she saw tennis courts and people playing tennis. And so she quickly smiled and agreed to her husband's request. So while she was dressing up for a tennis match, he was putting on his swimming trunks. Now, church... As humorous and lighthearted as this story is, it reminds us of something of great importance. It reminds us that having a proper view matters. It matters because what we perceive will often affect what we do. And if this is true of tennis courts and swimming pools, then how much more is this true than of God? You see, without a proper view of God, everything he is and everything he's done would have at best vague significance to us. And even as we celebrate Christmas and we hear of God's greatest gift to us, without a proper view of God, it would all be of lowly value to us. But God this morning brings us before the window of his word to give us a view of who he is. He wants for us to be able to perceive his majestic holiness and glory through the eyes, ears, and heart of the prophet Isaiah. You see, this morning God has appointed a tour guide for us. His name is Isaiah. But he is not just any tour guide that wants his audience to experience the same, the, experience the same sense of awe, fear, and trembling. That he has experienced. He is a tour guide that wants his audience to be changed the way he was changed at the sight of God. Church, this is what Isaiah wants us to see this morning. And this is the call on us from this text. God wants us to behold the holiness of God. Behold the holiness of God. That as we behold His holiness, our hearts would be filled with a deeper understanding of the majesty of our holy God. 
and that it will birth in us an insatiable taste for his majesty, an irresistible hunger to know him, to love him, and to honor him. You see, beholding the holiness of our God, my friends, will lead us to unspeakable joy this Christmas season. So this is how we are going to do this. See, Isaiah is going to take us through three scenes this morning. In scene one, we will be presented with God's holiness. In scene two, we will look at man's sinfulness. And in scene three, we are going to marvel at God's redemption. So let's begin. Scene one, God's holiness. And as I said earlier, the prophet will be our guide this morning. So Isaiah is walking us through the throne room of God, and if we are going to maximize this experience, we need to pay close attention to Isaiah because he is going to share with us what he sees. He is going to share with us what he hears, and he is going to share with us what he feels. And so the first thing that he shares with us is what he sees. What did Isaiah see? Let's go to verse 1. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So the first thing that Isaiah sees in verse 1 is the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And Isaiah wants us to know that there is a throne in heaven. And the Lord God sits upon it as the sovereign ruler of the universe. My friends, this is central for us and central to the fact of heaven. That there is an occupied throne in heaven. You see, God does not sit on a chair in heaven. Anyone might be able to sit on a chair. But only sovereign kings sit on thrones. Judges sit on thrones. Those with proper authority and sovereignty sit on thrones. In fact, Isaiah was not alone in seeing God's throne. Almost everyone in the Bible who had had a vision of heaven, was taken to heaven, or wrote about heaven, speaks of God's throne. Job saw God's throne in Job Job 26. David saw God's throne in Psalm 9, 7, and 11. The The sons of Korah saw God's throne in Psalms 45 and 47. Jeremiah saw God's throne, Lamentations 5. Ezekiel saw God's throne, Ezekiel 1. And, 20, and 10, Daniel saw God's throne. The Apostle John saw God's throne in Revelations 4. In fact, the book of Revelation may as well be called the book of God's throne because God's throne is spe- specifically mentioned more than 35 times in that book. But we live in a culture of atheism or materialism A culture that believes there is no heavenly throne. There is no seat of authority or power all the universe must answer to. In fact, this is is a humanistic culture that believes in a throne, but one where man sits upon it. But the Bible makes it clear for us that there is a throne. 
but there's not a man sitting upon it. Not just a man. But the Bible makes it clear that the heavenly throne, the Lord God, who is enthroned in heaven, sits upon it. And he is high and lifted up. You see, no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or cutting his grass or shining his shoes or reports or, or writing reports or loading some kind of truck. You see, heaven is not coming apart at the seams like people say. No, God sits on a throne. All is at peace and he has control over everything. His throne is, is his right to rule over the world. We do not give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. What folly it is for us to act as though we had any rights to, to, to at all call God into question. God is utterly authoritative. He is the Supreme Court, the legislature, and the chief executive. After him, there is no appeal. But unlike human governments, God is a king of infinite honor and dignity. Look back at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, Isaiah sees this train of his robe fill the temple. Now, I've, I've never seen royalty in person. No, Al, you, you don't count. I doubt many of you have, but we sure have been to weddings, and we have seen the train of a wedding gown. Some are longer than others. Some are really long, and all the bridesmaids are carrying it and maneuvering it down the aisle and everywhere the bride turns. You see, the train of a wedding gown has the same symbolism as the train of the robe of a king. It is a symbolism of splendor, of honor and dignity. Yet church, the most impressive gown that has ever been displayed in the history of creation is the one we are seeing here with Isaiah, because we are told that the train of his robe filled the temple. And in the richness of this symbol, Isaiah is beholding the sheer majesty of the heavenly king. This is a king of infinite splendor, honor, and dignity. And this reality needs to have great significance in the way we view God and in the way we live our lives. You see, church, it had great significance to Isaiah and the people of Israel. In fact, Isaiah gives us a glimpse of this significance by setting for us the context of this vision of God's throne. Look back with me at verse 1. He says, in the year King Uzziah died. Stop right there. My friends, the context of this vision is a time of mourning. Israel had just lost their king. Now, who is King Uzziah? But we could find the story of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Don't, you don't have to turn there. But this is what 2 Chronicles 
chapter 26 tells us. It tells us that King Uzziah began his reign at the age of 16 and ruled over Judah for 52 years. And 2 Chronicles 26.4 tells us that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father, Amaziah, had done. You see, Uzziah was second only to David in his accomplishments on the battlefield. He was a capable ruler. He was a capable administrator. He was a capable military leader. And in fact, 2 Chronicles 26.8 tells us his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. He did what was right. And during his reign, Israel experienced prosperity and blessing. But towards the end of his life, he became proud. And in his pride, he stormed into the temple and he presumed the role of priest. And God struck him with leprosy. So he spent the last years of his reign separated from the temple and the people. And he ruled through his son, Johan. But as long as he was alive, he was a uniting figure that brought a sense of peace and stability to the people of Israel. But Uzziah is dead. Uzziah was dead. His throne was empty. But when Isaiah entered the temple, he saw another king, the ultimate king of Israel, the one who sat forever on the throne of Judah. Israel's throne was not vacant. The everlasting Lord was sitting on it. Isaiah, Uzziah is dead, but God lives on. He is the everlasting God. He is the one who raises kings up and casts them down. He is the one who forms light and creates darkness. He is the one with no beginning and no end. And he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, in a time of mourning, God comforts Isaiah by giving him a vision of his sovereignty and authority. The king might be dead, but God is on his throne. My marriage is difficult, but God is on his throne. My child is sick, but God is on his throne. I have no job, but God is on his throne. Our greatest need in a time of mourning is to have a proper perspective of God. This is the window we must be taking a look from when our world is crashing down. When things don't go our way. When we know what not to do or what to do. God is sovereign. He is all powerful. He is honorable and good. He is high and lifted up over all our circumstances and he reigns. But God is not the only being Isaiah sees. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. You see, Isaiah sees God's angelic beings. And Isaiah takes the time to give us a description of the anatomy of these angels. He describes to us what they have. They have three sets of wings. These angels have faces and feet 
that need to be covered in God's presence. Now, I want us to think about this, okay? When God creates, he makes creatures that are suitable for their environment, right? I mean, when God created birds, he gave them lightweight bone structures because air is their habitat. When God created fish, he gave them gills and he gave them scales and fins for, for life for them is underwater. See, we can't live underwater, can we? Or fly in the air on our own. You know why? Because God who created us didn't make us for those habitats. But God created the seraphim. And he equipped them with three sets of wings. Pretty strange, huh? Why? Because their anatomy is functional for their natural habitat. The presence of God. You see, these beings, Isaiah tells us, stand above the throne of God as a servant would stand behind the throne of his king ready to serve him. And Isaiah tells us that with, with two wings, they covered their face. Now, you guys remember Moses? Moses once asked the Lord to let him see his face in Exodus 33. God knew Moses didn't understand what he was asking for. So God let him have a momentary glance at his back, but did not let him see his face. Why? Because he would have died. Not because Moses was cross-eyed, but because Moses, like us, was a sinner. And these seraphim are not fallen like us. Yet, they need to cover their faces. They are not corrupt sinners like us. In fact, they have been obedient to the task that God created them for from the day of their creation. And yet, despite of their sinlessness, they still need special wings to cover their eyes for the splendorous glory of the face of God. And Isaiah tells us also that with two wings, they covered their feet. See, feet are a symbol of creatureliness. See, Moses was told also by the voice in the burning bush in Exodus 3 to take off his shoes for the ground was holy. Now, what made it holy? It wasn't Moses. It was God in his presence. Moses' feet represented that he was a creature made out of clay of the ground. And even though the feet of the angels are not made out of clay, for they are not physical beings but spiritual, their feet still represent that they are creatures. But what I love most about Isaiah's vision is that we don't have to just reason why the seraphim are covering their faces and feet. But they actually give us the reason why with a proclamation. And Isaiah tells us their proclamation. He tells us their message. Look at verse 3. He says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, the message of the seraphim is to proclaim God's glory, his weightiness, his substance, his majesty. And know that they are not directly addressing the Lord God 
here as if God was in need of praise. Our Christian pop culture makes it sound as if God is in need of our praise. No, God is not in need of praise, but he is worthy of praise. And his creatures are in need of praising him. And so the angels are proclaiming his glorious nature and character of God to one another in the presence of God's glory. The very glory that provokes the angels to cover their faces and to cover their feet. The angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the angels are not singing of God's purity, which would be a secondary definition of holy. But they're singing of God's transcendence. God is set apart. He is set apart from creation in that the Lord God is not a creature. And he exists outside of creation. You see, if all creation were to dissolve, the Lord God would still remain. He is set apart from humanity in that his nature or essence is divine. It is not human. God is not a superman or an ultimate man. God is not merely smarter than any man or stronger than any man or older than any man or better than any man. You can't measure God on man's charts at all. He is divine, transcendent, holy. He is not human. So why do they sing holy, holy, holy? Why three times? Now this, this use of the word and, and proclaiming it three times is similar to um, the way we do bold or italic or underlining. It is, it is a Hebrew literally, literally, literary, sorry, emphasis of repetition. See, whenever something said was of great importance and intensity, it was repeated. Okay, so to say the Lord is holy says something. To say the Lord is holy, holy says far more. But to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord is to declare his holiness in the highest possible degree. So the angels are not content with holy. And they are not content with emphasis of holy, holy. They must say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. They take it to the third degree, the superlative degree. No other attribute of God is praised like this. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever read God is love, love, love. Or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or justice, justice, justice. All we read is God is holy, holy, holy. You see, holiness is the primary attribute of God. All other attributes must be in subjection to holiness. Holiness is the regulative principle of all of God's attributes. He, his love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His justice is a holy justice. And even his wrath is a holy wrath. But if we put love, for instance, as the primary attribute of God, then we can rationalize the idea that God excuses sin because he is love. 
See, all of God's attributes must fall in subjection to the primary attribute of God's holiness. God is all-powerful, but he cannot do everything. God cannot sin. He cannot use the power to accomplish that which goes contrary to his holy nature. God is omnipresent, but he is not in that which is evil. God does not by nature reside in every blade of grass or evil human being as pantheists would believe. But the seraphim song does proclaim that the whole earth is filled with his glory. And we are so often blinded to this obvious glory of God all around us because of the sin that blinds us. But reality is that the whole creation is saturated with the glory of God. Now I say I didn't only see and hear, but he also felt. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So what did Isaiah feel? Isaiah felt the doorpost of God's throne room shake. The idea may be that Isaiah was watching from the doorway, and when the seraphim cried out, he could feel the doorpost shake. They sound so they sang so powerfully, the doorposts were shaken. And now I know that these are majestic beings. But shouldn't we sing with the same passion? Shouldn't we sing with the same heart, the same intensity? I mean, we are told here that even impersonal objects like the foundations of the threshold had the sense to quake in the presence of a holy God. Now, if a doorpost can tremble at his holiness, why can't we? You see, Isaiah didn't only feel a quaking of the temple, but he also experienced a quaking of his heart, a complete disintegration of his soul. And this brings us to scene two. And we are shown man's sinfulness in verse five. It tells us, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwelled in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now I want us to understand that even before this experience, Isaiah was already regarded as a righteous man by his peers. He is a man of integrity. Yet, one glimpse of God's holiness makes him come apart at the seams. This is important for us to think about, my friends, because as long as our gaze is fixed on the horizontal plane of this earth, we have no problem with ourselves. Our perspective of our sin and what God has done for us will be met with indifference of heart. But if we lift our gaze to the heavens and contemplate what God is, church, we will be broken. Security and self-righteousness are crushed. And even the holiest of men 
are reduced to trembling with one glimpse of God. You see, when Isaiah discovers who God is, we, we just read, he pronounces an oracle of doom on himself. He pronounces a curse. Woe is me, he exclaimed. Now, it is one thing for a prophet to curse another person or another nation in the name of God. Right? I mean, they, 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 they had oracles of curse, of cursing. They had oracles of blessing. But it's quite another for a prophet to curse himself. And what we see here is that Isaiah was not only overwhelmed at the sight of God's holiness, but he was overwhelmed at the sight of his own sinfulness. You see, the first time he saw who God is was the first time that Isaiah saw who he truly was. And he knew that he was lost. I love the way the King James Version translates this. It says, I'm undone. So what is Isaiah saying here, my friends? He is saying, I'm coming apart. Now, as I earlier said, stated, Isaiah was considered to be a man who had his life together. He was a man of integrity. Literally, to have integrity is to have it all together. Isaiah's life was nicely fit together. He had wholeness of life. Yet, when he gets a glimpse of the majestic holiness of God, he loses the sense of wholeness. He completely loses his confidence. His self-esteem is shattered. Now, in our culture, this would be considered to be a bad thing, right? But this is not a bad place to be. You see, reality is that we all think too highly of ourselves. But when we are faced with the ultimate standard, we are undone morally and spiritually. And it is at this point where we are ready for God to do a work in us. I love the way Spurgeon put it. He put it like this. He said, God will never do anything with us till he has first of all undone us. Church, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we don't understand our sinfulness. And we don't understand how heinous it is, and we don't understand the consequences of it. You see, to see even the smallest glimpse of God's holiness is to be devastated. I say I would never be the same again. And Isaiah describes his condition before God. Look at verse 5 again. He says, For I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is unclean. Isaiah sees that he had a dirty mouth. Now this might sound a little strange to us. I mean, why, why, why does he say dirty mouth? Why, why didn't he say I'm a man of unclean habits or, or unclean thoughts? But you see, Isaiah knew his Bible, and he understood that by nature, our lips are full of flattery and false intent. Psalm 12, with flattery, his flattering lips, a double heart, they speak. By nature, our lips lie and are proud. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Psalm 31. By nature, our lips deceive. Psalm 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
By nature, our lips are violent. Psalm 59. Swords are in their lips. By nature, our lips bring death to others. The poison of ass is under their lips. Psalm 140. You see, he did not think for a moment that this was his only sin. But he saw that this was an example of the great incurable disease of sin in him. Isaiah also understood not only that he was unclean, but he also understood that his people were a people that were unclean. Look back at verse 5. Isaiah says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, of people of unclean lips. See, not only is he confronted with the awareness of his personal sin, pollution, and guilt, but he dwells in the midst of a people who themselves are provoking the wrath of a holy God. There's no escape. If perhaps he dwelled in a land of the righteous, there could be some hope of escape. Maybe God would miss him or lessen his guilt or appease his anger on account of the righteous of the people, right? Like Abraham when he pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. But there is no such hope. He is literally engulfed in a sea of iniquity, drenched in the gasoline of his own wickedness, standing in the flames of a holy God who is a consuming fire. It is a sense of utter despair. Before man, Isaiah was one of the most righteous people in all of Israel. But in the presence of God, His iniquity was plainly obvious. My friend, outside of the cross of Christ, absolute holiness is merciless. No sin can escape its blinding light. And the heat of its flames of judgment. What seems to be pure for us, it is still detestable and worthy of destruction before a holy God. And this is how you and I must see ourselves. If you have any view of yourself in which you think you have any righteous, good, or of merit before God, you are self-deceived. None is righteous. No one does good. I remember when I was first converted, I had a, a God-given hunger to know more and more about God. And so, I would go to Christian bookstores, and there weren't many to choose from around these parts. And so I would go to some of the Hispanic bookstores on 49th Street. There's actually one on 49th Street. And this was a Pentecostal bookstore. Uh, but I really didn't mind. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed I have a little Pentecostal in me. Um, and I walked through the shelves, the bookshelves, and I was always amazed at all the books written by individuals who claim to have been in heaven or claim to have a vision of God in heaven and boast about it as if God was somebody of theirs. Church, yes, in Christ, we have been brought to God and have been made children of God. Yes, the separating wall of hostility has been torn down, but we must not make the mistake. God is still holy. Holy, holy. And our only response before a holy God is not to, self, to sell self-exalting books of our new insight into heaven, but to fall at his feet in awe, fear, and trembling. 
An authentic vision of the Holy God is one that makes us aware that, that all our righteous deeds and all our righteous works are accounted as nothing, worthless, and worthy of provoking God to judgment. Woe is me is our only response. If God was to make his presence known to us the way he did with Isaiah here this morning in a vision like this one, not one of us would remain standing. We would all fall on our faces. Now, if this vision just ended here, it would still be considered the greatest vision of God our eyes could ever behold. Yet the vision doesn't stop here. But it continues to communicate to us God's holiness and in, and in so doing, it baffles us and amazes us as it gives us a picture of the holy mercy of God. And we get to scene three, God's redemption. And as I say, I was trembling on the floor naked under the holy gaze of God, being torn to pieces under the weight of pure, pure moral anguish. We are told of the way God deals with Isaiah. Look at verse 6. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Church, this never ceases to amaze me about this story. It is the steps that God takes to deal with Isaiah. God was in his complete right to destroy him and to do away with him. Yet God takes immediate steps to cleanse the man and restore his soul. What grace! There's none like this. The grace that a holy God bestows on sinners like you and like me. And we are told that one of the seraphim moves swiftly and takes a burning coal from the altar. And, co and, and the coal was so hot that the angel himself could not touch it, but he had to carry it with tongs. And he comes to Isaiah and he presses the white coal on his lips. And Isaiah receives cleansing. I mean, if we were to take this verse here out of its proper context, we would think, how, how barbaric. What torture to place a man through this. I mean, think about it. The lips are, the, are one of the most insensitive parts of our human flesh. And this majestic being is pressing this burning coal on them. I mean, you can almost hear the sizzling of his burning flesh. But my friends, this is not barbaric. This is severe mercy. A painful act of cleansing. This is an act of grace, but, but not, not, not just any grace. This is not cheap grace. This is, this is something that is sweet. You see, there is something sweet about true repentance. But there is also something painful about it. You see, true repentance, my friends, goes beyond just the cheap, easy utterance of I'm sorry. 
And it is sad to hear churches telling the unregenerate, God loves you the way you are. No matter what you have done, God is not angry with you. All you have to do is believe and receive him. That's cheap grace, my friends. And if you ever hear us preach like that, I want you to love God enough. And I want you to love this church enough to confront us in love. And if we don't listen to you, run. You see, true repentance hurts. And it's necessary in order for you to be made whole before God. But the pain that Isaiah experiences, is, is, it is minimal compared to what, what, what he received. You see, for Isaiah, a moment of burning flesh on the lips brought a healing that would extend to eternity. Look with me at verse 7. He says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah receives forgiveness. Do you know what it takes to get to the point where your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for? It takes a broken and contrite heart in the face of the holiness of God. No cheap grace here, folks. No easy believism. God was declaring this man justified on the basis of an act that had not yet taken place. He was justified the same way that you and I are through the atonement of Jesus Christ and the remission of our sins. You see, the coal from the altar burning through the lips of Isaiah was the symbol of the atoning work of Christ. The altar was the place where the holy God accepted and was satisfied by blood sacrifices. It holds together the idea of the atonement, propitiation, and satisfaction required by God And it also holds the idea of the forgiveness, the cleansing, and the reconciliation needed by his people. And all of this is achieved through a substitutionary sacrifice and brought to Isaiah, encapsulated in the symbol of a burning coal. You see, this coal, my friends, represents the sacrificial lamb that was brought to the altar as a substitute to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. It is here that we see the connection of chapter 6 with the suffering servant of chapter 53. Chapter chapter 53, 6 says, But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied. Who is this servant? This servant is Jesus, who was taken to the altar of Calvary as a substitute to take the wrath of God that you and I deserved. But this same Jesus, whose birth we will celebrate next week as Al preaches, is not just the substitutionary Lamb of God. He is more than that, my friends. Turn with me to John 12, verse 41. And let's bring this to full circle. John tells us that the vision of Isaiah, 
was the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And starting in verse 40, John writes in reference to the people's rejection of Jesus and his ministry. He writes, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And then John tells us this as a side commentary. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. My friends, here we have the greatest paradox of the gospel. The holy one that Isaiah saw in whose presence he was brought to despair over his sin is also the suffering servant. The one who would be the substitute. The one who would bear the penalty for the sinner's iniquity on the cross. And so the cross becomes this preeminent display of the holiness of God. It is the place that the unbreakableness of God's absolute holiness becomes the most apparent. So necessary is for God's holy wrath and holy justice to be satisfied that it would demand the very death of the suffering and holy Son of God Himself. To satisfy the wrath of the Father and to enable Him to forgive sinners. There could be no other way. You see, many people talk about the love of God. And we should, and we should, we should. But we may never forget the holiness of God. I heard it said once. I can't give credit to whoever said it because I don't remember. But I heard it said once. Well, it is said that the love of God held Jesus nailed to the cross. It was God's holiness, my friend, that necessitated it. Church, may this Christmas season become more meaningful to you as you are struck with a sense of awe, fear and admiration at the infinite majesty of the holiness of the baby born in a manger. He is more than just our substitute. He is God, holy, 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 Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Let us pray. Father, even as we seek to respond this morning to your word, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts. Bringing down the scales of our sins. Bringing down, Father, the dark cloths that blind our spirits and our souls and that you would be revealing to us the greatness of your holiness. The greatness of your Son. The holy creator of the universe. 
became a man. To die on our behalf. May that inform our Christmas season, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name.